You're listening to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. We share uplifting and positive stories from people all over the world working to change our planet for the better. I'm Lal, and this week we had the pleasure of catching up with Philip Wilson, the founder of Echo Filtro, the social business that brings clean water sustainably to the rural populations of Mexico, Guatemala, and other Central American countries. We cover a number of topics, including social entrepreneurship as a business model, the story of Ecofiltro, and the future of good business. Check out our show notes for the breakdown of a discussion at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Without further ado, I give you Philip Wilson. Philip, thank you so much for having us here today at Ecofiltro. Joy and I are absolutely thrilled to be here. Honor is mine. Absolutely ours. <laughs> so just for the benefit of the listeners and everybody watching, we've had a great conversation with you before we hit record, but I wonder if you wouldn't mind going back to the beginning and just telling us a little bit about yourself, where you were born and where you grew up. Sure. Well, so I was born in Guatemala, but we were living in Melbourne, Australia at the time. So my mom wanted me to be Guatemalan, so she put me in this big jumbo jet. Uh, flew all the way from Melbourne to Guatemala and a month after I was born I was back in Melbourne so first three years in Melbourne and then we were moved to England and then New Orleans I grew up in New Orleans of all places um, which was where Shell had their headquarters and um, and then went to college at Notre Dame up uh, near Chicago and uh, came back here to work in coffee after college so, coffee. Yeah, in the kind of the finance part of coffee. Wow. And um, then went to Wharton, and uh, I was a government and international studies major, so I had to learn how to um, add and subtract at Wharton. <laughs> <laughs> I went to learn math there. Um, and that was for an MBA specifically. Yeah. Right. And then after Wharton, you know, I decided I was meant to be an entrepreneur, so I just I, I started my first company at the age of twenty-five. I graduated at Wharton in California, and then, funny enough, got involved in uh, founding a bank in Southern California. A bank? Yeah, with, you know, several other investors. It was funny that I had a hard time with finance courses at Wharton, but... um, But then you founded a bank. (laughs) After uh, we sold our first company, um, I was introduced to an interesting opportunity of founding a community bank. And um, so that's what I did in California. But uh, my wife's Guatemalan, um, and uh, we started having kids, and she wanted to come back home to be with her parents. So we um, packed our bags and uh, moved back to Guatemala and uh, started another couple companies, started a tech company, and got involved with our our family's coffee farm and uh, made it organic and started selling to Whole Foods, um, and enjoying being a farmer, although realizing how hard it is because there's so many variables that are out of your control right. when you're in farming. Uh, but I have a new appreciation for farmers because it's a difficult job. Um, but I reached the age of 40 and, you know, um, I had everything and yet I had nothing. You know, I was looking for purpose. Mm. And, um, and I think it happens to everyone once you start having less tomorrows and yesterdays, and you start asking questions, why am I here? You know, I had an existential crisis. And uh, I'm fortunate to have a sister who's been a social worker since she was 19, so at a very young age. Uh, she's always been a giver, and 
I wasn't necessarily a giver, I was kind of an accumulator for many years. And uh, I told her at my birthday party, I said, I really want to do something that's greater than just making money. And I really want to try to start finding purpose in my life and making an impact. And um, that's how I got introduced to the world of water. Um, my sister would go village to village and she would have these nurses that would weigh babies and they would track the babies on a curve. And she found that 80% of sickness was water related. Uh, countries like Guatemala, they have abundant water, but it's all contaminated. And so she started treating that with chlorine tablets, but um, had very little success because people don't like so the taste. The taste. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, who likes drinking pool water? Raise her hand. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she went through that experience, and then she met um, an, an inventor called Fernando Masariegos, who developed this ceramic pot filtration technology that um, had a lot of cultural acceptance. You know, because from the time the the Egyptians, the Romans, the Mayans here in this region, they've always stored water in clay pots. So she inserted that solution to her work in the communities and had a lot of acceptance. People love the taste of the water, uh, keeps it cool. So, you know, even in coastal areas where it's really hot, it's like taking water out of a refrigerator. You know, yeah, it keeps yeah. it cool. But her model was giving the filter away to the poor and um, when I get inserted into the foundation because I was looking for purpose I um, I went and studied what she was doing and you know I asked the classic question so how many families are being impacted in your work with clean water she said uh, 2,000 families and then I'm like well how many families don't have clean water in Guatemala well about a million and, you know, I was having visions of Star Wars and Star Trek, you know, everyone <laughs> being, being dressed in those modern suits, you know, before we were going to solve the water problem here, right? 500 years. And I said, why, why, are you, why are you limited to helping such small amount of families? She said, because I'm limited by donations, you know, since I give them away. And then we go into the first community and, um, you know, the families are using the filter. They're happy. Um, it's kind of in a corner and, you know, it's not an uh, appreciated product because it's a giveaway. Um, the people are happy with the technology. We go to another hamlet of like 20 homes that we're going to receive filters in December for uh, that Christmas. And um, I noticed, you know, these homes had dirt floors, they had open pit fires, which is a very inefficient way to cook. Yet they had TVs, you know, and uh, they had cell phones and uh, they had dishes, you know, not, not to eat, but on the roof to watch. Uh, it's like a contrast you know, of two worlds. The, the, the final of the, of the champions. Uh, <laughs> and so I started asking questions. I said, you know, my sister's name is Dominique. I said, Dominique, why are you giving them away? I says, well, because they're dirt poor. You know, she would point the, the dirt floor. And I was looking, you know kind of as an outside alien coming into these, you know, bottom of the pyramid communities I'd never been to. And I says, yeah, but they seem to have money for TV and cell phone. And so on the right back, um, well, I actually, one of the things I did while visiting these homes, I started asking questions. I said, so what are you doing now to purify water? And he says, well, we boil water. 
And so what does it cost? They had no idea. They're like, well, we, we burn three logs a day. That's what we burn to, but they didn't know the monetary cost of, of those logs. So in, in the families kept repeating three logs, three logs. That's what we consumed to boil water early in the morning. So I went to the village where they would buy the, the firewood from. And it came out to between $12 and $14 a month was being spent on firewood to boil water. So on the ride back, we, this community was about four hours from the city where my sister and I were living. I started asking questions. I said, you know, um, can I do an experiment? Can I see if there's a way to sell the filter to the poor at a subsidized price? just to see if we can communicate the value. And she wasn't very excited about me selling filters to the poor. And I think that's very common in many areas of development, NGOs and foundations, mm -hmm. that they, they tend to classify the poor as objects of pity as opposed to potential customers. And that's kind of what I, uh, that's how I came to find my purpose at Ecofiltro as I, I defined a one-year experiment where I was going to really try to find a way to reach more than 2,000 families a year, which was the current rate. And what I had to do is I had to take the current filter and make an urban model that would be profitable and, you know, implement like the Robin Hood model. So, you know, I wouldn't be stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. I'd be selling urban at a profit and then subsidizing rural. That was kind of the idea. It was kind of funny at the very beginning. Uh, you know, you always go to your circle of friends to validate, right? So I started with my cousins. I have a bunch of cousins in the city, in the capital of Guatemala. And my first pitch was to my cousin, who, you know, is also my best friend. And I go to him with this beautiful, you know, um, clay receptacle with the filter inside. He says, hey, did you know you're spending... $250 on bottled water every year. I have a solution that's going to cost you half the price and you're going to have abundant water, you know, for the next two years. And um, after the like three minute pitch, he's like, you know, you're my cousin. We're like best friends. I don't know if I can drink water out of a flower pot. <laughs> a clay flower yeah. pot. <laughs> and, and I kept hearing the same thing. Yeah. You know? And these are like, my, this is my inner circle, right? Yep. My cousins, my neighbors. So what I ended up doing is I said, fine, you know, try the product. Because I had one in my kitchen and loved the product. It says, try it for 30 days and let's talk. I'll come back. And every single one that I placed on a 30-day free trial, not only did they buy it, but they said, hey, you know, I think my mother... I think my cousin, I think my brother, I think my sister would like one as well. So I ended up like doubling the sales. You know, I had like 53 people trying it and I sold over 100. So that's where I realized that, okay, there's going to be an interesting income stream from these urban filters. Because I was just trying to identify uh, a positive cash flow uh, business that would allow me to go back to rural areas and bring down the cost to a point where it would... A rural family would buy the filter and it would pay for itself in three months. That was the whole thinking. Yeah. And, you know, it proved to be a really good move because we started going back with 
instead of kind of this idea of paternalism, of going like Santa Claus and giving them away, having conversations with the rural poor and saying, look, and, you know, we, we gave them all 30-day free trials. We said, look, use this filter. Let us know how the health improves in your family and let us know how much less firewood usage you consume. And after the 30 days, the majority purchased. Um, and we priced it at a point where it would be, it, would, it was paying for itself at two and a half months. So all of a sudden, you know, you have people from the bottom of the pyramid giving us money. And it's a, it was a beautiful, you know, the first communities, you know, it was a beautiful scene of having all these people that previously were like beneficiaries of these free filters were coming to buy the filter. And that's where we realized we had something really special, that urban families, through the profits we were making at sales to companies like Walmart and all the big box retailers in Guatemala City, were allowing us to get the price down to a certain point where people could pay for it, and they paid for it massively. And um, you know, over the last seven years, we've sold over 350,000 filters. Wow, so it amazing. went from giving them away at a rate of 2,000 a year, which I would argue did more harm than good because you created dependency and people didn't appreciate it, to selling 70% of our sales, 70% of the 350,000 families that have uh, purchased are from rural areas. And when you go back to those homes and when, you know, the homes where they purchase the filter, it's like an altar and it's in the center of the home. It's clean. They often cover it with a clean cloth. There's a real appreciation because they've purchased for it. And I think that's, you know, what's been really interesting about this experience is that, you know, the poor can pay and you have to treat them with dignity and you have to converse with them. And if you have a great product and you have a great value proposition, they'll take the little money they do have and they'll pay for it. And our pitch is, you know, you know, buy a filter before you buy a TV, you know, because, you know, last year, 1.2 million TVs were, were bought in Guatemala, the majority in rural areas. So there's an, you know, there's an education, there's a communication um, challenge, you know, where we have to say, look, um, we know you want to buy these aspirational products, but before you buy these aspirational products, buy a filter, and with the savings of firewood, you're going to be able to buy an even better TV. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and you get your health. And, and your kids will never get sick. They'll never miss a day of school. So um, it's a very powerful concept. I think uh, business for good is, is, is powerful. And I think the future of business is, is going to be, it's going to look more like a social enterprise. Yeah. But I think people in 20 years are going to look back and say, your company was just around to make money? How weird. Yeah. How did it contribute positively to the world? Yeah. I think, That's I think it's going to be like absurd. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm very lucky to have this uh, opportunity to impact and use my skills, you know, because I would have been a lousy social worker. But uh, I've been fortunate to use my experience as an entrepreneur to, to impact. I, I want to, Philip, I just want to understand how it is that transition happened from being a very successful entrepreneur to then looking at the the social aspect. And I know we were talking about this before we hit record over lunch today. And you were talking about how you hit that point in your life where you weren't fulfilled. I wonder if you could just take us through that 
experience? Yeah, I think I think it goes back to something my grandfather used to always say is that, um, you know, uh, trees don't eat their own fruit, right? He used to always say that our nature is to be givers. When you're not a giver and when you're just an accumulator, you live a life of a lot of anxiety and, and potentially depression, you know, because you're fighting your true nature of being generous and serving others. And I think that hit me when I turned 40. And, you know, you start having less tomorrows and yesterdays and you really ask questions, right? You ask questions, why am I here? Um, you know, why am I not really happy? And, you know, I went back to the basics, you know, almost like being a child, you know, the, the innocence of sharing, you know, children share and yeah. give. And, um, and, that, and it hit me and I, I, you know, I had everything materially. I was very successful. I didn't have to work anymore, but I was miserable. It was kind of a pathetic life. You know, a lot of me, 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 traveling, accumulating stuff. Um, and then I think, you know, and I, I kind of said enough was enough. And uh, it's kind of really funny. My sister being the social worker, she's always been a very lighthearted, happy person. And it almost made me angry. I'm like, why are you happy? Look at the world. The world is going down the tube and, you know, we're... Um, there's nothing to be happy about. And, uh, and I think the reason she was such a lighthearted, happy person is she had lived her life from the age of 19 uh, true to her nature. You know, she was always a giver and always in the kind of the health uh, world, you know, improving the health of the poor. And um, instead of being angry, I started saying, wow, I want to be more like my sister than how I'm feeling uh, and that's what led me to go visit some communities with her. And I was going to do this for one year. So this was just a one-year experiment. thought this might get me over my midlife crisis. But it's, it's, it's addictive. When you start helping people, it's like you want to do it more and more and more. And um, it's a great addiction, you know. It almost feels like I'm being selfish. It's like, wow, am I doing this to help others because it makes me feel so good? But then, it's a know, feedback loop, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a total feedback loop. And, and, and it, it, it's why we're here. We're here to like use our talents to improve the lives of others and of the planet. And, and I get it now. Um, you know, I've been doing this seven years now. And I can't see myself doing anything that doesn't have some sort of an impact on others or the planet. Like, I can't go back to just make money. Yeah. Um, so it's like I've almost uh, evolved into, you know, another state of being um, that's led me to be a really happy person. Like, you know, I get up and I'm like screaming with happiness and I'm, you know, I'm almost like, gosh, how did I win this lottery ticket of being able to, you know, run a social enterprise? You know, I, I, do, I do ask that question. I'm like... I don't deserve this. This life is too cool right now. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I, uh, I spend a lot of time now talking to uh, business school students, university students, and kind of sharing my story because uh, I wish I was doing this in my twenties, not my forties. Yeah. But I mean, better late than ever. It's yeah. fantastic that you've had this turnaround and you are changing the lives of hundreds of thousands of families in Guatemala who need it so badly. And actually, it's interesting, you reminded me of something. Uh, on your email signature, you say, 
the purpose of life is a life of purpose. And I wonder if you could explain that or explain yeah. that a little bit more. So I think it's a little deeper than that. Because I think when I was growing up, you, you always get... Um, you always get told to be happy. You know, it's all about happiness and you want to, you know, live to be happy. And yeah, that's the Everything goal. you do. And I think we're called more to have a life of meaning, you know, uh, which isn't necessarily, you know, all about being happy all the time. But mm. when, when you live a life of meaning, which comes by serving others, you know, serving others uh, as a priority more than serving yourself, the meaning that that gives you gives you a real deep sense of purpose, which gives you a deep sense of satisfaction. It's like the Maslow hierarchy of needs. I think at the bottom it's uh, food and water, and then um, I think it's um, shelter, and then it's uh, healthy relationships, uh, uh, an esteemed professional career. But then I think before he died, uh, Maslow talked about you know if you you know the the ultimate lead is uh, self-actualization, which only comes from serving others. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and uh, I think he's right. I think he was right. That is our ultimate need, and it's the need that really gives you a life of great satisfaction, is uh, not thinking about yourself, but thinking of others and how you can, through your skills and whatever talents you've received, use that to improve the lives of others. Um, so, so yeah, it took me a while. To, till, took me till I was 40 to figure that out. Um, you know, my mom always said I was a late bloomer. She, um, <laughs> Some people never figure this out, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really sad. I think, uh, I think the majority of people kind of go through life, maybe sometimes it's uh, because they have a perception that economically they can't shift to another career or another... Um, source of income and so they kind of do the same thing over mm-hmm. and over and not really achieve that meaningful life that I think we're all called to have so yeah I consider myself one of the fortunate few so we've covered off how Ecofiltro came to be can you tell us a little bit more and we're sitting now for the listeners benefit we're sitting in the eco, eco, is it Ecofiltro or Ecofiltro or both. Echo Filtro. Echo Filtro. We're sitting in the Echo Filtro HQ in Guatemala, in Antigua, Guatemala. Which is beautiful, by the way. Which is awesome. And we're sitting surrounded by Echo Filtro filters. Can you tell us a bit more about the product itself and perhaps the invention? Because it sounds like a pretty unique thing. Yeah, it's it's really awesome. So um, the the inventor who's Guatemalan, his name is Fernando Mazariegos. He, uh, in the early 80s, the institute that he was uh, heading up received a grant from the Inter-American Development Bank, a $500,000 grant. Uh, and the objective of the grant was to find a way to purify water using local labor and local materials. And after two years and a lot of prototypes, um, he found that if you mix uh, a certain type of clay with pine sawdust and you coat it with colloidal silver, you can purify water of all bacteria and parasites, or in the case of urban water, chemicals like chlorine. And one of the interesting discoveries, not only is it very effective at purifying water, but uh, he nailed the cultural acceptance. Mm. We talked about chlorine tablets and how um, 
most chlorine programs have failed because people don't like the taste of the water. Well, he also kind of, when he was doing the research, I think he's, he was thinking as an anthropologist. He says, okay, I have to develop a technology that's going to be accepted. And, you know, from the time of the Egyptians, the Romans, the Mayans, they've always stored water in clay pots. So he tried to, he tried to mimic what nature does, you know, in a thousand feet to purify water um, in a few centimeters. That's really what his invention is, mm. is mimicking how nature purifies water. And I think the beauty of his invention is he donated it to humanity. Yeah. So he said, you know, this is too important to patent and to keep uh, inside of a corporation, this should be available to everyone. And so today, there's 59 factories in 30 countries. Um, producing this technology. Producing this technology. Like wow. in Cambodia, there's three factories. The last factory is Uganda. Um, in the last three months, we've had delegations from uh, Puerto Rico, Colombia, Venezuela, Tunisia uh, come here and and, you know, they come and learn how to produce it. And we try to teach them the social business model, how to sell urban uh, clients and how to uh, sell a rural family. And mm. it's very similar in every country and every continent. Um, but it's beautiful. I've learned a lot from Fernando, the inventor, because he's um, not only is he a great scientist, but he's a beautiful man that, you know, has never benefited economically from his invention, yet he's impacting millions of families every year. What a and, guy. Uh, yeah, he's a real he's the real rock star. The real actually the real deal. Yeah. That's amazing. And he normally sits here in this office and he's eight years old and he's still going. Yeah, yeah. He's still so, working on the design. Yeah, so so uh, <laughs> he's actually uh, we're actually he's heading up a, a project to create a ceramic disc filter to lower the cost even more. So that uh, in some countries in the world that need to bring down the cost so they can reach more people, well, there's going to be probably in a year or so um, a, a ceramic disc filter that you can copy. Mm. And um, yeah, he doesn't come in every, every day, but he comes in once or twice a week. And uh, he's still he's still uh, working hard. I mean, just just to be, and he's always happy. You know, yeah, going, going back to you know, get, he's a giver. Common denominator. And, uh, yeah. Very lighthearted, very, and um, you know, I think uh, very few people can say they're saving that many lives yeah. by giving something that he came up with to humanity. He must sleep well. I think he sleeps really well. <laughs> he gets a really good sleep at night. <laughs> yeah. um, it's actually it's interesting. Yesterday we were in Guatemala City and we went to one of the local homeware stores and we saw the eco filter stand. I think it was called Come Come. Ceramaco. 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 Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we saw yeah, this huge yeah. Yeah. eco filter stand and the all the different the designs types of and the patterns. Yeah. Oh, they're really yeah. classy looking filters. Yeah. yeah. So those are really profitable. Um, so all the urban channels are very profitable. And our distributors make a lot of money because there's a, a, a very good rotation. The, the inventory gets rotated a lot. That's why we're using the center of the store, the end of the aisle, because they, they, you know, we move a lot of filters through them. So we make money, they make money, and that allows us to bring down that cost so that we can go to a, we can donate filters to rural schools, and then we can, um, you know, price it to a point that the, the bottom of the pyramid families will pay for it.
That's awesome. And then we also, we were walking around Antigua and we just yeah. saw an Ecofiltro in every Everywhere. single yeah. store. Everywhere. And we were sitting having a cup of coffee <laughs> and the guy was filling up the Ecofiltro as like prize place in the restaurant. It's part of the furniture, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's been, uh, I think also people, um, well, people purchase it because we have a great value proposition. It's a, it's a lot cheaper than bottled water and the water tastes better. It's, 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 it's great quality water. But they also like, they know our mission is to reach a million families in rural Guatemala by the year 2020. So we have a, a lot of uh, presence in social media and in print media as well. And I think, uh, you know, deep down people want to feel good about purchasing something. Yeah. So they save money and they also know that they're helping us reach more families that wouldn't be able to afford full price. It's funny, in our hotel, you know, when, when you arrive at a hotel and the guy takes you around and he shows yeah. you the room and he's like, this is, this is, and yeah. then he pr- proudly presents the echo filter. Oh, yeah. He's like, yeah. here's the echo filter. Like, didn't, okay. didn't, even, didn't even point out the TV. Yeah, this like, is the echo filter. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah a, lot, a lot of hotels, uh, especially the ones that are getting uh, Rainforest Alliance certified, um, you know, are replacing plastic bottles with mini eco Right. And... Uh, so it's actually a good business decision because they save money on bottled water. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's good for the environment. I was, yeah. was going to say, the other major benefit of this is the environmental impact. The amount of bottles you must have saved yeah. to date yeah. would be incredible. Have you got an thousands, estimate? Thousands. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I'm sure it's in the thousands every day bottles. Be, right? And trees. We, we had a, uh, uh, a very well-known environmentalist uh, called Alfredo Maul. Uh, he calculated that we're saving about 1,800 trees a day because in rural areas, our 240,000 active ecofiltro users are no longer burning three logs a day. Right, and chopping so, down the trees. Carbon emissions. Yeah, and so we, you know, that's how we generate carbon offsets. But you know, if you look at it as a tree, it's 1,800 trees a day. Mm. That, you know, it's almost like a little forest yeah. every day that's not being cut down. By having this technology in rural areas where they cut trees down to cook and boil water. All told, you're probably carbon negative, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we were speaking to Aaron from Gran, who we've also interviewed and will be up on our podcast as well. And he was telling us about how Guatemala has 30% of the landmass is protected natural areas. So it's actually preserving an asset that will become really important to Guatemala and the world at some stage, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, trees are so important. Not only do they clean the air, but... You know, when it rains, they soak up the water and, you know, uh, make sure more water goes to the aquifers and not out to the uh, to the sea, which happens. You know, when you cut forests down, you know, you get landslides and that water goes to rivers. And then, you know, they say Guatemala is one of the biggest exporters of mud. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, you know, by preserving more and more trees, well, you're making sure we have clean water to drink for our grandkids. Um, and, you know, it's it just... It's so important to have trees. You know, it's like any country that loses all its trees, that's a poor country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's how I define poverty. But I think we're going to be turning things around. You know, if we get to the million families, we're going to have more growth and more forests and uh, more of an increase in trees than a decrease. The ripple effect is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the the manufacturing process. You've briefly showed us the factory and we're going to go and get some footage of it. But tell us about why it's so sustainable. And Yeah, well, I mean, you know, everything from our energy is solar. So, you know, we, we the roof is full of solar panels and um, 
we, you know, all the, the computers, the lights, the, all the machines in the factory are run with solar energy. Cool. So and then all the drying of the filters is done with the wind. That's why the factory has no walls. And then all the drying of the raw materials, the clay and the sawdust, is sun as well. You know, we bring it down to 13% humidity with uh, sun, which is free. And I think it's important to, to state that um, using renewable energy, not only is it the right thing to do, but it's a great business decision. Yeah, you know, cost I mean, effective, right? It's very cost effective. And, uh, you know, I think that's what's going to make their use explode. Uh, because, you know, in, in, you know, take the, the solar panels. They cost me, I think, $50,000. I got a five-year loan. The monthly payment was the same that I was paying on electricity. But since I don't pay electricity anymore, I didn't feel any cash flow impact. This is the last year. This is year five. So I finished the loan this year. Then I have 20 years of free energy because the panels are guaranteed no, no for brainer. 25 years. So Amazing. I think sometimes people think I'm a solar panel salesperson. Because <laughs> I, tell, I tell everyone that has factories, it's a real, it's a no-brainer. It's, a, it's great for the planet and it's great for your bottom line. You yeah. know, it's going to make your business more sustainable. And I think that's the message. Anyone in sustainability needs to talk about how it's financially uh, profitable to make mm. these decisions. Totally. One final question on the impact. You've shared some of the stats, but do you have any stories where you've, that you've witnessed or you've seen sort of on the ground of how this has changed people's lives? Yeah, one, one which was quite recent. So we basically replicate what a lot of tech companies do which is like give software to universities. That's kind of their market entry strategy. So about four years ago, we started our school program. Oh, cool. And uh, we donate one filter per classroom, one in the kitchen. And that's how we become, that's how we establish presence and credibility in a community. Right, the kids are taking, going home yeah. and saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so today we're, we're in just over 2,800 schools, um, just over 700,000 kids are drinking water out of an eco-filter in a classroom in rural Guatemala. And kids do not tend to like boiled water. You know, it's, it tastes like dead water. It's warm. It's got a smoky taste. So they end up like filling up their bottles and bringing them home and convincing their parents to buy one. But one of, a great story that was told to me uh, about a month ago, uh, we have a school about an hour from here from the factory. And uh, the director said, hey, we're coming up to the, the, the two years, and can we receive another donation? And um, I asked him how the filters had impacted the school. He says, well, I take attendance uh, every day, and since the eco-filters came into the school, uh, tardy days for kids that um, have been sick for from intestinal infections has gone down 82%, which I thought 82 was... 82%, that's, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. And, uh, it's actually a phenomenal statistic um, that, you know, I was very proud of and I told him to put it in a letter. And uh, we, we get a lot of those testimonials. But, you know, it's great to know that, you know, there was about 300 kids in that school that, you know, they're, they're experiencing 82% less. We're seeing that also with, we have a lot of corporations like Nestle, uh, Nestle here in uh, they have a factory here in Antigua. And being Swiss, I think they're really uh, high on measuring everything. Well, they subsidize filters for their employees, and we reduce sick days by 64% uh, mm -hmm. with their employees, and so we increase their productivity. 
we probably lowered it in the 80 percentile for the kids. You know, adults tend to develop an immune system over time. So that's why, you know, it was only 64%, but it's still a lot. Um, so we have a, a business case for bringing filters into the homes of employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously an obvious one is getting them into, uh, into schools as well. I can imagine the flow-on effects. You can't even measure that, you know, like yeah. education, like kids staying in school yeah. and getting educated and, the, you know. Not spending money on medicine. Right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's uh, you know, and I have to attribute this to my sister because she focused her foundation on water right at the beginning. She saw it's, you know, 80% of illness in countries like Guatemala is water-related. So she's the one that really taught me about the importance of providing safe water, mm. especially in rural communities where they suffer the most. Yeah, yeah totally. and, and in Guatemala, more broadly, Philip, is there much focus on solving social and environmental problems? You know, you're, you're starting to get a groundswell of a lot of social entrepreneurs that, um, you know, are, you know, focusing on access to energy. You know, there's companies like Kingo that... Uh, are putting these small solar panels all over rural areas and getting a lot of traction. Um, there's other companies that are trying to find uh, technology in the clean cook stove area because you know Guatemalans burn a lot of firewood per capita. I think it's top three in the world. Wow. And so um, you're starting to see social entrepreneurs look at these problems like we did with clean water and find solutions that are culturally accepted and that are sustainable financially. So those are two, access to energy and uh, clean cook stoves that you're starting to see some really great projects that are scaling. And um, I, I, I see the future very bright because it's, it's the era of social entrepreneurs and they're gonna figure out how to solve these problems quickly. It sounds, so it sounds like it's very much being driven by the private sector as yeah. opposed to government intervention. Yeah, so, so government, uh, you know, if we look at what, what has the government done, by law, the government's supposed to be providing portable water, but it, it isn't. And, you know, a lot of the, unfortunately, a lot of the resources in governments, like the one in Guatemala, a lot of the expenses are operating expenses, and there's very little to invest in, you know, um, water treatment plants, which would mm. be the solution. So they're not doing it. And then NGOs and foundations are limited by the resources they can raise, the donations that fund them. And also kind of, I think, their model of giving things away isn't the right way to solve That's, problems. Yeah. And you have business, you know, so a, a pure business, you know, they, they have their corporate social responsibility programs, but they're often limited in scope and they don't provide a lot of resources. Yeah. So I think, you know, taking the brain of the business and the heart of a foundation and, you know, putting it in a blender in uh, creating a social enterprise, I think that's the clear path forward yeah. to, to solving a lot of, a lot of uh, our challenges in developing countries. So you're, you're optimistic about the, the state of affairs or what will become the state of affairs in Guatemala in the near future? Very. That's, that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. awesome. We actually, we spoke to, like I said earlier, we spoke to Aaron from Grant. Mm-hmm yesterday and he mentioned how you've been mentoring him and you've been such a major help yeah. to him like he kept on talking about it yeah, so you've obviously speak highly enough of you yeah you're obviously very passionate about growing you know contributing to this groundswell of entrepreneurship and social enterprising what is it what is it that that you get out of this why is it exciting well for you? well I, I think um, I think not necessarily right now but 
you know, two or three years ago, you know, a lot of the business community would question, you know, they would say, you know, I don't know about this social enterprise model, uh, you know, to, to provide an example, and you can't use Ecofiltro. You know, I, was like the, I was like the poster child for, and so I decided three years ago, I said, you know, I really want to try to mentor social entrepreneurs that I think have solutions that are scalable and I think have the capacity to grow. And so I have about six or seven uh, individuals that I'm coaching. And, uh, you know, the good thing is, uh, you know, I, I just provide the ideas and they have to do all the work. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of fun. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's my um, obligation to share not only the successes, but the failures. Because mm -hmm. at the beginning, we failed a lot trying to figure out how to be sustainable in rural areas and what kind of financing we should provide. And, you know, we did, we struck out a lot at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think we came to an interesting situation where we, we have a model that works. And I'm like, you know, if, if I'm authentically interested in reducing poverty and providing better lives, I need to share that with others that are looking to do that in other areas. So, so yeah, I, I think probably 30% of my time now is mentoring. Um, you know, their, their company has to have um, social and or environmental impact. Mm -hmm. And then I'll agree to, to, um, to an hour a week. Right. And uh, just sit down and, and go through, you know, the, the interior, the financials, the strategy, everything to, to, to try to, you know, bring it, into a position where it can scale. And it sounds like you're doing that organically within the Ecofiltro family as well by, yeah. by opening up the, the technology right. to be available to anybody around right. the world. As right. you were saying, it's open source, right? Anywhere, anyone in the world. It's like the hamburger, right? You know, we, we try to protect the brand. So if, if someone comes from, um, you know, Bali and wants to learn how to produce it, if we're not in charge of the factory and quality control, then we don't let them use our name, Ecofiltro, mm. but they, they, uh, you know, they find uh, a name to use as a commercial one to promote the filter. Um, but that's why you don't see Ecofiltro all over the world. You right. only see it in this region, Mexico to Colombia. But I would say 100% of the ones that have come through here are doing a great job producing the filter in the way that we've taught them how to produce it. And, and it's fun. It gives it a global scale. It's really cool. And you're saying like the, the amazing thing is that the materials that are used to actually make the filters are available everywhere. And every single country. And that's yeah. kind of yeah. bizarre and awesome. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's cool. I mean, you have to spend a little time, especially the clay. Um, but, you know, we, we tell everyone, go to where the oldest artisan community is in your country. And they're usually next to the best clay. Mm. And that's how you find it. So we've talked a little bit about the role of social enterprise, the role of NGOs and governments, or lack thereof. Yeah. Um, what about consumers to you? What do you see as their role in making change happen in society? Yeah, I, so I think um, young, kind of the 18 to 35-year-olds, uh, they want to know how whatever they purchase, how it's produced, and the story behind it which isn't necessarily the case with the older consumers. Yeah. And so I think one of the reasons we've had a lot of traction, a lot of growth, is young people really like that 
you know, we're good to the planet, you know, we use local materials. Um, after you, fi you finish using your filter, after two to three years, you use it as a flower pot. There's no contamination. And people like, consumers like supporting something that's um, built for a higher purpose than just making money. Yeah. And now with social media, everyone knows everything, you know, which is good and bad. You know, companies that have negative externalities, let's say they're producing a product in a plastic container that's, you know, ending up in all the oceans. I mean, they have to be, they have to really rethink their model because they're going to lose a lot of the young consumers, which are going to be their biggest consumers soon. And um, there's a real tsunami of people, I think, supporting companies that have positive externalities. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to change. Are there any of those companies out there that you've seen, aside from the ones that you've mentioned already, that you're really excited about, that you've seen and you're like, wow, that is amazing what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, I talk, I'm really excited about Kingo, for instance, yeah. because they're reaching thousands of families uh, with a solution that provides electricity inside the home through a solar panel which is a lot cheaper than kerosene lamps or candles, mm. which, you know, lead to a lot of kids getting burnt. And not only is it economically expensive, but, you know, there's all kinds of tragic stories of, you know, homes being burnt out of the ground and mm. kids dying from having these lanterns and candles everywhere. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that company. Um, there's another company that's really interesting that I'm mentoring uh, it's called OneBot, which is trying to bring uh, robots to rural schools and uh, teaching kids how to program, cool. by programming a robot. And has a similar model to Ecofiltro. Urban sales to urban schools are very profitable, and it's allowing them to price it uh, at a very affordable price for rural schools. So we're at the bottom 10% here in Guatemala in, in science, technology, and math. And... Uh, I think if we can get all these kids in rural areas learning how to program and um, learning math through programming robots, you're probably going to achieve um, better ranking than what's happening right now in our public schools. So yeah, a lot of cool things happen. So many cool it's amazing how those technologies are leapfrogging the West in many ways Yeah, and the old paradigms that we've come from. Yeah, I mean, how much more advanced is an eco-filter yeah. eco than plastic bottles? And end up in the oceans. Totally. Yeah, it's it's. I think we're becoming more civilized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we had a little detour there, of, uh, you know, barbarism, and now we're. I think we're we're coming back to our senses, and you know, we're questioning how things are made and what happens after they're used, and and I don't think that was the case twenty years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm 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 very positive about the future. I I really am, and I think. Um, I have too much evidence of too many cool social entrepreneurship projects to to feel pessimistic about the future. Yeah. I mean, there are too many things that are happening that you're going to start hearing about because they're going to scale so quickly mm -hmm. because the model is right. It's a sustainable financial model. Yeah. And when you don't make money and you're not financially sustainable, you don't impact anyone. Totally. But if you're financially sustainable um, and you've got a great product that improves lives, you know, you solve problems pretty quickly. That's the way to go. And talking about the future, Philip, is there anything exciting that's coming up in 2018 for Ecofiltro? 
Um, I, I, I think something that's, uh, I mean, I, I can't even sleep at night sometimes. I'm so excited <laughs> about this. You know, one of the big mistakes we made is we always focused on cost with our economic model that we, that we were selling to rural families. You know, the plastic bucket, which, you know, looked like a paint bucket and very dreary and vanilla. Well, we got a little smarter this year and we've developed uh, at the same cost this model that's going to be, you can choose amongst 10 colors. It's going to be a super aspirational model, like having a TV, that people are going to buy at the same price. You're going to be able to buy at the same price. And we launched that July 1st. Oh, cool. So cool. I'm really excited because... You know, my goal is a million families by the year 2020, and we're at about 25% of the goal. So I need to do something. Like, to, yeah, we need a big game change, big game changer soon. And I think this, um, I'm going to replicate what the TV companies have done. You know, the flat panel and yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I think I didn't do that for many years because I focus on cost, but I still focus on cost. But you can also make something beautiful. Which we finally figured out how to do, and uh, we're gonna have a big, massive press conference, and everyone in Guatemala is gonna know about this new product, and they're gonna fall in love with what it looks like, and I think that's gonna get us to the million by 2020. So that's awesome. That's the next big thing that's gonna happen, and I, I wish it was sooner rather than you know three months away. That's so exciting. The, the team here must be so impassioned by their work and excited to work here. Is- yeah, it's a it's a really young team. Uh, but you know, there's no office politics. I, I think when you when you have a noble mission, you know, people really buy into the mission. We try to hire based on how excited they are about what we're trying to do. Um, people work a lot harder, mm. you know, because it's not about just making money, but saving lives, saving the planet. Um, so it's been an interesting. This is the first social enterprise that I've been leading. And I must say, one of the great things is uh, people really put their heart into their job. And uh, sometimes you have to tell people, it's time to come home. You know, it's, uh, you, you know, you shouldn't be here yeah, at 7 ahead. o'clock, but, you know, people are Can't really excited. Themselves. But, you know, it goes back to our nature, you know. Serving it's addictive and, and mm. they know that if they do their job, the best that they can do it, they're going to impact and maybe save an extra life. Yeah. And uh, so it's been a really interesting experience. It's confirmed that, uh, you know, we're here to serve. And when you put together a group of people that want to serve through a social enterprise, you get a rock star team. And it's kind of like the green Google of Guatemala in that you've got an organic farm here. Yeah. You've yeah, got a soccer pitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get that in the tour, yeah, definitely. We get that yeah, in yeah. Well, we have... Um, it's actually a, a, a great place to work, and uh, we provide an organic uh, lunch every day. And we try and um, you know we have a small clinic here, and it's very uh, human centered, and uh, everyone appreciates that we're really concerned about everyone's health and that they have a pleasant place to work, mm-hmm. and they pay you back by you know being super productive in the different jobs that they do. 
administratively or in production. Mm, yeah, you can tell just walking around, everyone's like focused, yeah. got their yeah, eye on the prize. It's got a yeah. really good vibe to it. Yeah. 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 Cool. yeah, it's a good team. So we've already mentioned that you, you mentor a fair few individuals as social entrepreneurs. I want to just draw some of that out, Philip. For anybody listening, what is maybe one or two pieces of advice that you give to those mentees in running their own social enterprise? So we always go back to the value proposition, okay? What, What is the problem we're trying to solve? And is your value proposition so attractive that people will pay for it? And so we focus a lot on the value proposition and unit economics. You know, it's got, you've got to reach that individual profitably, you know, because if you're not profitable and you multiply that time in a million families, you're in bad shape. So very, very much focused on, on the value proposition, on unit economics. You know, I'm always, uh, we always talk about the importance of sales. You know, if, if you're not selling, you're not helping anyone. And so how do we sell better? You know, how do we make our product more attractive? Because um, they're not giveaway programs, right? They're, they're social enterprises that need to sell something profitably. And, um, and, and I would say that's 90% of what we talk about. It's funny, Aaron said to us, Philip told, told me that I need to be holidaying lessons and yeah. selling more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that, I think all my mentees will say the same thing. And, uh, you know, because I want them that's to succeed. Mm. I want them to succeed and... and uh, and I think a lot of them are taking that advice and they're, they're starting to see a good, good growth, yeah. uh, which means good impact. Yeah, that's so cool. So we are leaving soonish, I think, and we want to definitely go on the factory tour. So we're going to round off here. Philip, thank you so much You're for welcome. the talk today. Joy and I have absolutely loved just picking your brain on this, and we think it's the coolest thing. So. <laughs> definitely. Well, thanks for uh, making this... Uh, this model known to more people. I think uh, I think it's important work that you're doing. It's going to impact others awesome. by, by sharing this information. So thank you. And we'll put the, the links to Ecofilter and you and the team and, and all the social media links as well in our show notes so people can find you easily and learn Excellent. more about Ecofilter. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much again. No, thank you. Friends, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Philip. Such an inspiring guy. If you want to learn more about Ecofiltro and the work Philip's doing, click on the links in our show notes. And as always, any cues, comments, or suggestions, please email us at hello at sustainablejungle.com.